0: Welcome to the Ag Emerge Podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. We're here to move the ag paradigm forward by helping you regenerate your soils using new ideas, research, and emerging technologies.
1: Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm Kim Sheese. And I'm Monty Bottons, And we're your hosts. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Thanks for tuning in. On today's episode, Steve Groff joins us. He and his family farm 215 acres of cash grain crops, cover crops for seed, pumpkins, hard squash, and heirloom tomatoes in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. For the past 25 years, his cedar meadow farm has conducted thousands of cover crop research trials, out of which he developed the tillage radish, known and used around the world. Steve is the founder of Cover Crop Coaching, which educates farmers and farm advisors about effective cover crop use. He recently founded Hemp Innovators to help farmers learn to grow CBD hemp. He also does international regenerative agriculture consulting and is the author of the upcoming book, The Future-Proof Farm, Changing Mindsets in a Changing World. So we welcome you today, Steve, to the podcast. I had the opportunity to hear you speak about five years ago at one of our national conferences and cover crops, while they weren't a new concept... Were certainly not as widely recognized as they are now. I can remember you telling us uh, about that early research that you were doing and how you've explored not only cover crops, but that whole soil health and farming system. You've really delved into that. And we'd just love for you to give us just a bit of that journey that brought you to this, what you call, and I'll quote it, your quest to pursue a better system to grow nutrition nutritious food by mimicking nature in resilient and practical ways.
2: Well, you know, I guess it goes back to 1982. Uh, We had ditches on our farm that we couldn't cross because, uh, well, to harvest our corn. So we had to close them up. And frankly, I just didn't think that was right. I had no environmental concerns. Uh, We weren't talking about soil health. Uh, That wasn't a thing back in those days. For me, it was just a nuisance. And then, when I started seeing the uh, the effects of no-till on my fields, I thought, well, wow, there's something here I think there's uh there's more earthworms and you know when you when you rewind almost forty years ago, we didn't know much at all compared to today. we didn't even know what to look for we didn't even know what to expect. so in a way, I kind of backed into the soil health movement, as we call it now, and it wasn't until the mid nineties then when I was starting to do public speaking, uh, I was speaking in Maryland and uh, Dr. Ray Weil was there, uh, University of Maryland soil scientist. I made the comment, and I find this quite interesting now in retrospect, made the comment that I'm not sure that cover crops pay after you no till for 10 years. <laughs> and uh, so he came up to me afterwards and said, You want to do some research on that on your farm? Because I got a grant to do. Uh, some research, and I said, well yeah that would it would be nice to know and he said i 've been asking the same question so four years into that uh, research it was a long term study which was which was great. Uh, we had a very dry year here yields were off uh 40 percent, but I had twenty eight bushels more corn where we had cover crops the previous four years, so since nineteen ninety nine you know, over 20 years ago till now, I've never asked that question of cover crops pay. I was convinced then. And then uh, we did some more work and we got into the, the later became the tillage radish and the cover crop movement. So, you know, from that day forward, uh, that kind of epiphany moment in 99, and then we started getting the, involved with the cover crops and then soil health. Uh, this is how the chronology goes for me in my story, my journey. Sure. And now we're realizing we still don't know anything. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's just, that's what I love about this. So that we continue to learn and there's just so much to learn. It, it will it will uh, not be all learned in my lifetime, that's for sure. But we got a good foundation uh, to go off of. And, and over the time, I got to say, uh, meeting people uh, like Monty, I mean, remember that first time in that field in California, we found that earthworm? Oh yeah! First Earthworm in 30 years, man. That was again a that was a powerful moment in in my journey. You know, not looking back, it was one of the key moments. Uh, One of the moments I actually write about in my book that just came out. So uh, I guess Kim, that's just a nutshell of of where I'm at here today, and uh, just continuing to to try to learn and discover how we can be better farmers in the context of where the future is headed.
1: Well, I love that, and I love that in agriculture we're still learning. And that's, right. that's exciting because learning is what makes it interesting and keeps our minds going and growing. And it also helps us to recognize that we know that there are things that we learn that we've had to relearn or rethink. Yeah. And I think that that attitude, uh, as you approach the things that you're doing, really can affect the, the changes that you're making. So that's super exciting.
0: Yeah. No, I um I remember that moment you were talking about there, Steve. That was a lot of fun. It, uh, we were, uh, you were being sh- uh, chauffeured around the valley by our friend, Dr. Jeff Mitchell. And it was, I think, about 730 at night or so. You know, he yep. likes to run you hard. Yep. And uh, we were out there digging. And I think, oh, I forget what year it was, probably 2006 or something. In there, yes. It was almost like Alan, uh, he, was, he was admiring that like his own child. So exactly
2: right. We, we and that picture that I took photo. of him, and it comes through in the picture, that oh, yeah. photo it comes through in that picture that the actual, you know, just the feeling, the emotion of the moment.
0: Right. And that was funny because it was, we had just, it was one variety of uh, a Trios 102 Triticale. You know, mm-hmm. we weren't doing multiple varieties then it was right. just, just one thing. And we were really worried about too much residue and, mm-hmm. and all these kind of things. And you look at how far we've come now, it's like, yeah. Oh, it's not cool. Mm-hmm. If you got under 12 varieties, you know, and, <laughs> <laughs> and uh and it's not cool if you don't uh plan into something that's taller than your tractor cab so yeah. you know you're a long way in a short amount of time. That's right.
1: I feel like these are all the things we need to be video documenting because these little epiphanies along the right. way that you know just to be in the car with you guys having these mm-hmm. conversations of and getting oh, yeah. excited that's good stuff.
0: Well really isn't that the uh, main reason for your book? Is to to really kind of set the stage of of all the pioneers and the innovators in 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 soil health and cover crops and and kind of got what it, what yeah. got us here today. You want to talk yeah. a little bit about the motivation behind that?
2: Yeah, and I appreciate you noticing that, Monty, and, and you're in the book too. Uh, so uh, I should count up how many uh, people I mentioned. Uh, I think it's over thirty uh, different people who have influenced me, and uh, you know. This, this whole soil health movement, regenerative agriculture movement, it is a it is an actual, uh, it's an irony, but it is a grassroots movement. It certainly hasn't come from the top down. And, um, you know, we need our scientists. Um, we need, you know, our government agencies. We need all those players. But this has really been farmer driven because farmers have noticed the difference. They've seen the subtleties in their soil. The, the problem with a lot of, Uh, of research that's more on the academic side is they can't do long-term research uh, in the context of actual farming uh, standards and so forth because when we talk about biology that's different when you talk about how does a fungicide work uh, or or how does a, a herbicide work you can do that in a annual basis and get good data when we talk about biology And the influence of five years, 10 years, 15 years, even 20 years can be factors to get the results that we're looking for. It's very difficult to do in an academic setting. So what I've appreciated also, and I do mention several scientists in my book that I've worked with, that, that they have worked with farmers. And Dr. Ray Weil is a key example. He worked with me on my farm. He did his research on my farm. And he always said, he said it makes him look like a more credible researcher because he's doing on-farm research. I said it makes me a more credible farmer researcher because I have a scientist in the field. And so I love those partnerships. I love those bridge-building experiences to bring together because it's not about one person. Uh, it's about a collection of people, similar mindset, moving forward. Uh, I think it generally captures his is, you know, ultimately we want to survive as an industry from the financial side of it. But it's also recognizing that we need to be thinking more than a one-year plan, one-year economics, or one-year yields. You got to be thinking, I tell people, you're interested in soil health. The first thing is have a 10-year commitment. Anything less than that, I question your motives to really, really make it work. Uh, so so these are some of the examples I bring out in the book and so forth. But, you know, being able to I, I just feel so privileged uh, uh, to do what I do and to meet other people and to learn. I, I think when I travel um, most all the time, you know, I, I will learn as much as I ever share. So it's this it's a gratifying thing for me to, to be at Two Way Street.
0: Well, and I think it's it's great what you're doing with the book, because. You know, like you said, you've been doing this for twenty thirty forty years in the, on your own journey, mm-hmm. and today, for someone to get started with advanced nutritional practices on mm-hmm. their planner and high diversity cover crop mixes and and those kind of things, think of how much lower risk it is today for a farmer to do that because we have so yeah. much greater base of understanding yeah. than what you and I did twenty yeah. years ago, right? oh my. I mean, and how many mistakes have we made? Uh, you know, yes. now we've got, you know, those mistakes are behind us and that's yeah. how you learn. And mm-hmm. the equipment technology is so yeah. much better with onboard planter rollers and, yeah. you know, onboard row by row variable rate yeah. nutrition. And mm-hmm. it's in combination with much larger uh mm-hmm. Quantity of cover crops to choose yeah. from. Remember when we were first working oh. together at Cover Crop uh, mm-hmm. uh, Solutions? You know, mm-hmm. we was like, "Wow, this is a four-way mix. This is yeah. really cool." You know, <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, that's that. It's not cool if you're under thirty now. I think it is.
2: And, and I can remember again. You know, I've had many epiphanies. I guess you'd say. I remember um, when we had this idea to mix two seeds together uh and that was radishes and oats
0: how's that gonna we,
2: we thought well yeah so we actually <laughs> never it never here's the thing it never crossed our mind um well no i shouldn't say it to, i should say it this way what we did is uh we just put them together and never reduced the the seeding rate we just put two seeding rates together and what happened that first year is the radishes outcompeted competed the oats and there's hardly any oats in the spring so we thought Okay, so instead of thinking, well, we should lower the radish rate, we decided to block off every other section in the drill. And we thought that was a brilliant idea. And it was. But uh, but then, you know, realized, well, we just need to reduce the radish rate and then the oats will give a chance or grow a forage oats, which is more aggressive. Mm -hmm. There's simple little things. I got to tell you one other story, too. I like to share. uh, So for the young guys out there that, you know, when I first started back in the 80s, I made my own row cleaners. I didn't know of any i I think Martin might've been the first one out with them. I didn't hear of Martin till later on. I made my own row cleaners. I took uh, old uh, closing wheels and, and mounted them on a an angle iron and welded the, the little stub down there to it and actually bolted bolts. I took the rubber cast, the rubber um, soft rubber outside component out and I drilled holes and I pulled it apart and I put bolts in there with nuts on to make a, uh, a row cleaner. That's what I did back in the early '80s. Now there's so many road cleaners out there, you don't know which one to get.
0: <laughs> right, and there's a, and there's a cooler one every year. Absolutely, we so keep adding to the pallets of old planter parts in the shed.
2: I have a pallet of old parts myself.
0: <laughs> well, it, yeah, I mean it's fascinating to see where we where we've been, and you always have to keep that in context. But I think the knowledge base that that you know we've accumulated in Mm -hmm. the soil health community over the last 15 years Mm -hmm. makes the entry for a large scale farmer i think easier than ever oh yeah and and the ability to not make a mistake out of the gate you know and i know one of your things is you like to say you know try a portion not not your whole farm but try a portion and try a little more the next year or Mm -hmm. you know a lot of farmers we're working with now are maybe cover crop everything and then okay let's try advanced practices like mm-hmm. intercropping yeah. or you know interceding um you know companion cropping yeah. um i think we got more practices than we have words for now steve so um yep you want to share a little bit of your if let's say i'm a farmer listening to this right now and i want to you know, I really want to do soil health. I want to get started. I've maybe tried cover crops a little bit. What is a good way to put that 10-year plan together in your recommendation on how to grow it over time and and increase complexity over time?
2: Well, I'd like to start with farmers for where they're at in their knowledge base. And uh, that's all over the map. I mean, some will get a lot of information before they do anything. And others are like, well, I heard about these cover crops, I'm gonna do the whole farm now, I'm convinced, and that neither there's a really a good way to jump into it. So, uh, if I'm talking to a farmer one-on-one, I'll ask, just to get a sense of where they're at, I'll say, so what are you trying to accomplish with soil health or with cover crops? I wanna take them from where they are at. Too often I feel like we say, hey, this is the recipe that works for me, you need to try this, and all these magical things are gonna happen. And that generally don't work. Um, I'm okay with giving out some specific recipes to farmers, but I'll always say you got to have your own recipe. A good chef eventually gets their own touch, their own recipe for the meals that are the best. So, great uh, yeah. analogy. right. So, what are you trying to accomplish? That's the first, and then I get a feel for what they know, and then I might say, "Let's go with that. That's great." Cause I always love to take people from where they're at, where their understanding is. And then we start talking about a few details. What time of the year are you able to get a cover crop planted? You know, that's based on your crop rotation, everything. And um, so understanding what their objectives are, then the timing window, because that that really gets uh, down to the nitty gritty then. If they say, well, I'm a corn soybean farmer in Minnesota. Well, there's not much time to plant cover crops after corn or soybeans. We happen to know that interseeding might be a good place to start there. Mm-hmm. Or is there any chance you could grow a field of small grain? Always got to ask that question because I tell farmers that the days of a corn soybean farmer, I think, are numbered. That's uh, a little presumptuous maybe for a non-Midwesterner to say that, but I can say it because I think, if we're serious about soil health, we're going to have to mix things up a little bit. And so I'm going to challenge everybody right now. You might be thinking about putting something else in your rotation. I get it. I know it's not easy. I understand markets and everything. So, so understanding what a farmer has to work with, then we can start talking about more specific strategies and maybe species and, and, and so forth. So that's just a general, that's the way I look at uh, farmers when I, Especially newer farmers when i start um, mm-hmm. I start discussing about what what they want to achieve
0: so we've got the goals, what we want to achieve kind of create a little bit of a roadmap based on on where they're at, and that just comes from interviewing and asking lots of questions, spending time, boots on the ground. now the farmers going along, and I think these are kind of some fun things to share with folks. What are some of the stories of things that you've seen? that would be what I consider unintended benefits of cover crops. Mm. So let's say they were going for erosion control or they're mm. going for, you know, improved water penetration. Mm-hmm. You know, those are kind of the basics that yeah. a lot of people look at cover yeah. crops for. Yeah. I think it'd be fun for you and me to share some of the unintended yeah. benefits that, oh, wait a minute, mm-hmm. this happened. Mm-hmm. What, what are some yeah. of the things that uh, you've seen for surprising stories with people you work with?
2: Well, one of the things that I think, would relate a lot of people could relate to and it was a surprise to me was how well cereal rye can hold back herbicide resistant weeds I, I never predicted that um I, I knew that you can get some weed control but you know there's small streams of broad leaves that are out there it, it's 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 not perfect but it helps and it's and i know of several farmers who have this has driven them to cover crop use because of the herbicide resistant weed issue um so so that's definitely one i mean i remember back when i was just starting out uh you know i didn't even really know what a legume was i didn't really i mean i heard about this harry read a story about hairy vetch like i gotta get me some of that you know and i tried it the first year and i was so impatient because i just learned about it over the winter that i actually bought some and planted it in like march and it's kind of out of season for hairy vetch but uh it grew I got to experience it, and, um, and then later on realizing, you know, what it did for the soil. Um, and, and, uh, and it's more than just nitrogen production. And, of course, you know, my affiliation with radishes. When we first started using radishes, and there's a lot of people don't realize this, but what later become the tillage radish, uh, originally uh, we were looking at, at nematode suppression for soybeans uh, because that's what Dr. Weil had seen that in Brazil. And he said, we need to check this out. And that was our target. So what we found out was that the results were not consistent from farm to farm. Mm -hmm. We realized that there's different species and subspecies of nematodes. And it's so huge that you couldn't make predictions that it'll do this on this farm or do that in that farm. What was consistent with the radishes is we got yield response from corn and soybeans. And you know, everywhere, every, what do people talk about the first time you see a radish? Oh, it opens up the soil, loosens the soil, makes the soil more mellow. So that was a, 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 a dramatic difference of expectations there. Right. Um, that, and, then, and then the evolution of radishes, I mean, I never, I no longer recommend radishes on their own. That could be a, a, a very rare time, extreme compaction or something, but radishes are now, they were a big thing. I built a business on it you know, 10, 12, 15 years ago, but now they're the salt and pepper of a mix. They're just sprinkle a few radishes in. uh, That's what, that's where their. that's where their niche is. Mm -hmm. One or two pound per acre, that kind of thing. So it's interesting how things have evolved over time. And uh, and there's little surprises, I guess you'd say that might come up.
0: Well, and I think it's good that, uh, you know, people can see that and make those changes over time because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, the things that we think we know maybe aren't so, and, and, you know, we can change it from the main course to, like you said, the salt and pepper. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, but I, I think it, you know, everything has its place and we just learn and adapt and continue to see what those benefits are. And and I agree with you, uh, those weed suppression. Yeah. Um, I, I came up with a saying a few years ago, and I don't know if I've shared it with you, but when, when I plant a cover crop, I'm planting the weeds I want. Yeah. Yeah, If I don't plant the cover crop, nature's going to send me the weeds I definitely don't want. Yeah. And we've seen tremendous opportunities for weed management in perennial crops in California. Mm. Uh, We actually uh, took some uh, 1590 John Deere drills, modified Mm -hmm. them, took the box off, put a sulfur Mm -hmm. tank on them, and then put shielding so we could drive down uh, almond rows and pistachio rows. So, and with the, and super heavy duty down pressure, so we can penetrate Mm -hmm. all of that traffic pattern that's in the center. And we also set them up to where we could plant just next to the trees. We could plant just in the middle, so we could plant the full width, you know, depending on what conditions warrant. And the beautiful part about that is, is one, water infiltration. Mm-hmm. you know, breaking the surface seal mm-hmm. in, in uh, saline, sodic situations. All right. Uh, so in pre-irrigation, you can get a lot better water in the surface, sure. a lot less runoff of rains. Mm-hmm. But number two is, is we've gotten rid of a lot of these weeds that are really tough to control, you know, rhizominous See. species and, okay. and other things. So the chemical use is way <laughs> down.
2: Mm.
0: Wow. So, you know, again, uh, one of the you know, and it goes along what you're saying with cereal rye, but really it's kind of all species. If you can mm-hmm. dominate the space with mm-hmm. the species that you want, you'll keep the species that you don't want mm-hmm. uh, away, or at least severely weakened. And yeah. it, and honestly, it makes them a little easier to kill too, yeah. because they're they're not as uh, hardened off, and right. uh, they're they're little little kind of wimpy weeds yeah. that are that are easy to kill. So, right. yep. Then there's mm-hmm. one other unintended consequence, Steve. I know, I know this makes you uncomfortable when I bring it up, but then you got landlords that talk about, Oh, look at all that cover crop out there. Gee, you should really feed it. Yeah. And then, then from there, (laughs) it all goes South, doesn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I think, um, don't you see quite a few people are using these now as part of a a rotation for either, um, you know, cows, sheep, uh, soccer cows and, and, you know, being able to graze these cover crops to generate revenue off of them mm-hmm. versus just having it as a, as a cost. So, I mean, yeah. they're generating revenue either through animal livestock or mm-hmm. saving costs through mm-hmm. herbicides. I mean, who who would have thought that when you started?
2: Well, who would have thought Monty Bottons would be, uh, would have uh, Grateful Graze uh, uh, meat, you know, I'm yes. thinking back when I first met you, I would have said, no, you're, you're that Midwestern corn soybean farmer. There's no way that's going to happen. <laughs> you know, and,
0: we, got, so, we pride ourselves on giving the neighbors something to talk about.
2: Well, <laughs> I understand that feeling. Uh, but so you're ahead of me in that game. I, I, I had brought my neighbor's cattle over like twice. My other neighbor on the other side of me, he has cows. I'm a dairy farmer. He just didn't want to mess up the rotation, or I mean, the, the ration. I should say there, sure. and and you know, so it, you know, it. It maybe we'll maybe we'll get there someday, but no, it is ideal. I tell people that if you're asking about cover crops paying, uh, if you put cattle in the operation, they're unquestionably going to pay. It, unquestionably, all the dynamics of bringing animals back in land and the biological component, it is the ideal. Now, again, as you so well, no. It's like you have this level of management that is required to be a successful cover cropper. And then if you're new to animals, that's another level of management up here that you need to to do. You don't just, you know, unload uh, cattle and put some fence up. I mean, it's like you don't just buy a no-till planter. You don't just buy a bag of cover crop seed and you become an instant cover crop expert. Um, so many nuances for all those levels. i, just, I like to explain it's you got to embrace the levels of management to get the accomplish to accomplish what you want to do.
1: I remember you saying that cover crops can make a good farmer better <laughs> or a bad farmer worse. Bad yeah. farmer worse. I always follow that up,
2: Kim, saying that just because you make a mistake doesn't mean you're a bad farmer.
1: That's right.
2: Uh, the point behind that is exactly that it's about the management. And I I started to say something here in the last year in my talks that the profit. The profit in cover crops is in the management of the cover crops. And that's a little different way of thinking about it. And once you put it in that context, uh, at least at least to me, I think that is the, the reality of it. Because pretty much when a farmer gets over five years of using cover crops, you don't see many of those farmers uh, going away from them. Pretty much when they start to see the difference, in spite of challenges, we all have them, uh, you know they 'll they 're going to stick to it and continue to refine it,
0: then the addiction has taken hold that 's right, I got gotcha. you, yeah, yep, but uh, you 're <laughs> right, and I think at first, I remember on our own journey when we started with cover crops a long time ago, I was like, boy, you know will this work? How do we make it happen and then it 's like, oh, we need to do all sorts of you know cedar modifications, and we did that, and oh, we <laughs> have to do different mix modifications and timing and planning mm-hmm. and now it's it 's mm-hmm. just okay it 's really as much of a focus as our cash crop and Mm -hmm. that's always been something like you've said uh, Mm -hmm. you know from day one that I met you is treat your cover crop like your cash crop that's right give it that level of management that's right don't make it an afterthought that's right make it a a primary thought Mm -hmm. and um, that I mean that still holds true I'm sure from what you've seen and oh yeah comment on that as far as the cash crop and cover crop uh, treating them the same
2: well, I I'd use the analogy of uh, no farmer is going to uh, be not prepared on the first day it's time to plant corn in your area. You, you know, you have your seed bought way in advance, your planter's ready to go. Um, so in cover cropping, I'm not saying you need to buy your seed three months in advance, because sometimes you don't really know how things are going to shake out in the in the summer or fall, or whatever. But the point of it is, When that first day to plant cover crops, which may be right after the combine, you want to be ready. You want to have manpower in place uh, or or have someone, custom operator, come into it, whatever you need to do. Because, you know, another thing I like to say is one day in September is worth a week or more in October, more than one week sometimes. And and it it costs the same for the seed. It costs the same to plant it no matter when you plant it. So, and, and I've done studies. This is where the research comes in. Uh, on my farm here in southeastern Pennsylvania, the difference between planting September the 15th and September the 30th, only a little bit over two week difference, I get double the biomass at the same time in the spring um, and and at planting. And so that's huge. And, and so it's all about maximizing it. And, you know, some of the little things we do is, is plant a little shorter season corn or for me, on my on my worst fields, because that's where sure shorter season corn is probably going to do best in the context of of the uh, maximizing that potential potential. Um, and there's a you know shorter season beans. I'll tell you, here in Pennsylvania, uh, I, I think based on some just surveys that we've done here, show of hands and everything. Now the uh, we used to call them full season beans. Uh, actually, our full season beans used to be like three eight, three nine, four zero. Oh. Now our full-season beans are two seven, two eight. Why? Because we can harvest the first and second week of September. And i got to say, this is for Pennsylvania. Well-drained, hilly soils. You know, we don't take advantage of some of the deeper soils that the Midwest can and and get down in that reserve of moisture if it gets dry. So there could be a geographical thing here. But the other thing, too, is there's so much cover crops used here that farmers love to get their beans off, plant cover crops, and start in with corn and that has literally changed in its i'll say in a statewide basis. Um that's just one example how we've treated our cover crops like our cash crops and and you know it's, it's it's working the farmers are responding.
0: A Couple of other things I think I've seen and and you probably have too traveling not only in the United States but you know throughout Europe and Asia mm-hmm. that you have um dryland farmers. So mm-hmm. let's say um uh, dry land would be under 20 inches of rain per year Um, and in irrigated areas Mm -hmm. where let's Mm -hmm. say a Mediterranean climate we're getting six Mm -hmm. to eight inches a year but mainly full you know hot full irrigation right Um, you know cover crops were downplayed then right and when you came Mm -hmm. to speak to us in Denver I think it was probably what five years ago um, okay. You know, everybody was, you know, almost throwing tomatoes at you and, and, and everybody yeah. else up on the stage there about, ah, oh, you can't grow cover crops. We don't have the rain. Yeah. You know? yeah. But the funny part is, is back to, if you don't mm-hmm. plant the weed you want, you get the weed you don't want. And right. we've seen in, in Western Kansas and Colorado, when cover crops are used, mm-hmm. we suppress kochia, you know, which is yeah. worse than water hemp to try to control with glyphosate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we're going to waste the water through kosher, or we mm-hmm. can waste the water through a cover crop, right. which is really the waste. Mm-hmm. You know, So we mm-hmm. can plant what we want, control the weeds. Um, mm-hmm. Dryland adoption, how are you seeing that that coming uh, throughout yeah. the United States and the world as far as, you know, when, when you're in the Missouri River, basically yeah. in east, yeah. we're dealing with enough to excess rain. Correct. You know? but when we're Missouri River and west, we're typically mm-hmm. – rain negative how how right. do you see that adoption rate happening in dryland versus yeah other areas yeah.
2: well first of all just to go back just a second what you were just talking about uh in dryland areas a lot of times they'll do fallow uh and they're, so they're tilling it two or three times i say wasting water they say they're saving it but you know when you stir that soil up uh, not only is it evapotranspiration transpiration but you know the microbes and everything you're killing them the sun's beating down there. It's 130, 140 degrees in the soil. So there's all kinds of things going on.
0: Yep, losing uh, carbon, and, killing crops. Right, so you,
2: yep. you you got to understand that. Now, I will I will say this, that in dry land areas, and I've, I've been to Australia a couple times, and, uh, and and that certainly classifies as dry land, 20 inches or less rainfall, uh, that the management requirement is higher if you're going to be successful in cover crops. and and you may not get a good uh, opportunity every year when uh, when the c- cash cropping cycle accommodates cover crops. It could get dry at the wrong time, we'll say. Like, you know, before your uh, cash crop is going to be planted, you have your cover crop growing there, you have to terminate it three, uh, four or five weeks early, and then it just doesn't grow, all these questions. But um, w- when I was in Australia, the one farmer, Josh Walters, and made a statement that I'll never forget. He says, "We need to build a bigger bucket. We need to build a bigger bucket."
0: You're gonna and have thought, to work. You gotta work on your Australian accent.
2: I know I, it's not good. I, oh, no,
0: I, yeah, I might. I, I gotta build it myself a better bucket. That's uh, yeah, yeah, mate. Uh, anyway, that's right. But I, I, I've heard him say that. Go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt.
2: Yep. So, uh, so, and I said, "Well, what exactly do you mean?" I thought I knew what he meant, but he said, "Well, we need to capture every drop of water." that falls out of the sky and we need to keep it there, infiltrate it and keep it there. I knew that, but, but it's a mindset. And uh, I was in Australia one time when they had, everything was beautiful, green, growing, lush. Was there the second time and it was very dry. The cover crops that were 18 to 24 inches tall, the first time were well, now in a three to four inches tall and barely alive. But even then, um, they were saying that that tiny bit of growth, it was the biological component that they were going after, not so much the biomass. And this is all about understanding some of the science. So we do have to understand some of the science behind all this. So they were trying to keep the biology alive. Um, And, and, you know, I, I saw that there, saw it with my own eyes, but I will tell you, you gotta have. Um, you, you just have to be. Maybe a. It's maybe not as forgiving the first decade even, because in in ten years you may only get three or four or five seasons where you can get a really good cover crop to do you know a lot of benefits for the soil. Um, so the soil has been beaten down, tillage and everything for a lot of places, decades or centuries even, uh, and it does take time to rebuild it up and. So, so I'm going to say that dryland areas can be more challenging. But um, you have to use the, the principles still apply. There are cover crops used to dry out soil. There are cover crops used to retain moisture in soil. Um, and and the, the way the season works sometimes, it can go against you. Uh, but all in all, again, this is why the 10-year outlook is important. Um, so, you look for those opportunities, and when people say it to me it 's an easy argument now against fallow i can't think of one good reason to use fallow um, and and there's a, there's data now that's starting to back that up uh, so to me that's an easy that's a fairly easy one to overcome.
0: And you're referring to chem fallow or till chem
2: fallow or till fallow. I right. mean they they both are
0: fallow to to yeah. you know you might alternate years to grow the cash crop still, but yeah for the weed control instead of chem, chemical mm-hmm. termination or yeah. tillage termination, you're saying let's use yeah. a cover crop to right. to help suppress the weeds. Yes, sir. Right. Very good. Yeah. Very good. And I think it's a really important point because the farmers that we get to work with in western Kansas, Nebraska, and also eastern Colorado are great managers. And they're mm-hmm. doing a great job of managing their crop for the the corn now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And again, if they've got that management expertise mm-hmm. and they know their soils, they just need to uh, turn it on, put that same thing toward their cover crop, you know. Yeah. So, and, and and treat it that same way. That's, so that's for sure. Again, it's all back to treat your ca- cover crop like mm-hmm. a cash crop. So yes. Um, let's talk a little bit about applications of um, cover crops in specialty crops Um, Mm -hmm. and what you've seen there. We've, you know, we talked a little bit about tomatoes, some of our experiences in the tree crops, Mm -hmm. but I'm uh, going to, you know, blend this over just a little bit with what you're doing now with Mm -hmm. uh, hemp and cover crops and hemp together. You know, if the world of cover crops wasn't enough for Steve to know uh, and and he was getting a little bored, um, you know, just, you know, He he was traveling the world um, uh, not enough. He wanted to have a little more notoriety and and offer his expertise. He jumps into the hemp world because uh, it's become available now for farmers in many states to be able to plant. And uh, there's a tremendous, tremendous need for um, good coaching and consulting associated with hemp. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about uh, that transition, what you've got going on there, how cover crops are a part of that story. Uh, i believe there is a lot of lot of goodies in here to unpack yep. I'll, I'll let you take <laughs> it away on on where you see uh yeah. you know hemp production and cover crop integration yeah. and how that can work for a farmer anywhere
2: first of all i was first uh, uh introduced to hemp back in 1999 i actually kept the brochure of a meeting we had here locally where the effort was with the with our state farm bureau and with penn state university was to try to convince the legislature to let us grow industrial hemp. Would have been a fiber type hemp at that time. The whole idea was to provide another uh, cash crop. Um, well, that failed. Uh, it was We were too early. Uh, I actually grew for two years. I grew canaf, which is a, I guess a distant relative. It is a fiber crop, not as good as industrial hemp. And I also grew sun hemp, which was interesting And sun hemp is a legume. It is considered a fiber crop. Interestingly, that became a prominent summer cover crop. So I was introduced by with sun hemp before uh, as a cover crop was more in the fiber end of it. So um, as as the the years went on here in Pennsylvania, so the first national bill farm bill was 2014 that allowed for some testing and research of hemp to be grown. Pennsylvania not ready again. Uh, we had a couple of legislatures that were all legislators that were for it, but not enough support to make it pass. Uh, of course, then we all know 2018 legalized everywhere. Pennsylvania was right on it at that time. I dove right in. So I was ready. This wasn't an after, afterthought for me. Uh, so, so I was ready. I had already had some connections, people I was talking to, trying to understand the industry, uh, just get up to speed on it all, the dynamics and, and all that stuff. And trust me, I have never seen an industry so diverse from, you know, these, um, with all due respect, you know, these uh, hippies that uh, that grew in their closet, in their backyard, and then you have commercial farmers, I'll call them like me, and then you have our local Amish farmers who also wanted to get in on it. And so, you know, we have these meetings and you have this mix of tattoos and body art and long hair and beards. And Amish and farmers with you know regular capsule, and it's like, I've never seen you like it. Uh, so so it's been kind of fascinating, but that's not why I get in it. Uh, I, I got in it because I saw opportunity. I saw, um, you know, there's there's something here. It's a healthy product. The CBD is where I'm at. I have not uh, uh, gone into the fiber part of the seed production. I've stuck to the CBD. Um, and I've, as everybody knows, that market has really tanked. Uh, there was too high of uh it was priced so high that everyone and their brother and neighbor got in it. And uh but we're working through that, I'll call it the pile of uh biomass now. I'm in it for the long. And part of the reason is, and you're right, Monty, I can't help myself sometimes, uh, but it's fascinating to me. It's a new crop. Uh and the, the plant itself grows easily. The the plant itself, that's why they call it weed sometimes uh, but uh but, but the the difference is though is you can really maximize this plant uh, and that's where the challenge comes the the um, there's a little bit of a almost a hypocrisy i see coming along with with the crop especially cbd production and that it's touted as a sustainable crop this will sequester co2 and all these things you know for the environmentals and it's true but then everybody's using plastic and tillage to grow it and I'm like, what's the matter with this picture here? We don't need to put this out in the last week of April like you do corn. We actually don't want to plant it now till like now, like in June. You can plant it too early. It can grow too big because, uh, and all these different – I won't get into the details. So there's why, why do we need plastic? I get it. We control. Why do we need tilly? Just, this is a very aggressive plant once you get it going. Now, there is some challenges. It's a very small seed. So we have spent hours on our planter and I've taken my, built my planter up and tore things off and we're still testing stuff. There's, yesterday we were out testing three row configurations and three planting depths. Um, and we, now we back to the shop again. It rained last night. So back to the shop again, you know, you know, Monty, how that works. So I don't have it all figured out yet, but in my mind uh, the future is direct seeded hemp, high density hemp. Um, so that's, that's where I'm headed. Um the using cover crops, man, that's gonna be an awesome story. Um, when I can tell people that and by the way, I'm starting my own brand now. I can't help that either. Just like you with Graceful Graze, you know, you see a challenge, you're gonna get it. You're gonna do it. Uh so uh, you know, I have a good story to tell. Um, you know, and and it's just it's just so applicable to cover crops. We can let them grow big, we can let them grow till June the first, our cover crops, our hairy vetch, crimson clover roll it down uh i could be organic probably if i i'm not quite there yet i'm trying to grow it without any synthetic inputs um getting really close um so that's what really you know excites me about hemp it's just a new challenge um and and uh wow it's a lot to learn i farmers will come up to me even you know now you don't have many because the the words out the prices come down everything They'll say, you know, what do you think? you think it should grow hemp? I'm like, if you're even asking that question, the answer is no. Um, Because you got to be all in. Now, if I can help you, if you say, oh, well, I want to be all in. I see the future. And if I hear that they have a rational explanation of why they should be in, then I'm willing to spend time to help them through it. And I'll just say now to all who are listening, if you thought about hemp, And I do think it will be a thing Um, in spite of right now is is not a great time maybe to enter. It will get solidified. It is the wild, wild west still is. There's a lot of, there's a lot of sharks out there and snakes and and there's some people out there that the culture in this industry is different than the culture I grew up in with a lot of people anyway, (laughs) with the way we do things and the level of trust and everything. So that's just one thing. Uh, but if you're all in, if you have an end game, where your product's going to be sold, all that, yeah, it, you can you can uh, welcome to the party. Uh, but you got to be all in. It's not like growing corn, harvesting and taking to the grain elevator and getting paid the next week. No, doesn't work that way. Total different system. Total different system.
0: Uh, we uh, Kim and I actually went to a meeting here in Illinois for hemp in August or September, I think last mm-hmm. year, right? and there was about uh, the university of Illinois extension person asked uh, farmers to raise their hands if they were growing hemp this year and about 50 people raised their hands. Okay. And then he said, how many of you have your processing lined up for this year? Then two, two, two or three raised their hands. Yep. So yeah, it's not the mentality of, uh, grow corn and take it to the elevator.
2: And I would venture to guess...
0: processing lined up. And if you're going to be in the game, you know, a couple of farmers partnering together to create the processing equipment. It's not that expensive, you know.
2: Right. And and I would venture to guess there's a few hands there that
0: still didn't sell their crop yet. Probably. Or had the disc it under or Or, rotted or, you know, got caught by late frost, all these things. Yep. So... When, you know, looking at, uh, unpacking a lot of what you said there, Steve, mm. uh, I appreciate what you're doing with the planter, And I think if mm. you can make that happen with the planter, you know, that is outstanding. I think there's enough margin in that product and the seed cost is such that it, it will, it, it just kind of, um, lends its way to the way tomato production went, mm. you know, when we were on tomato production, we did seed it, direct seeded and then watered okay. up and, and such yeah. like that. But what happened over time is the uh, tomato seed got so high priced mm. and then we drip tape became available instead okay. of furrow irrigation. That's when we went to wider <clears throat> rows and transplants, mm-hmm. transplants sure. allowed us to get planted earlier to, yes. be, you know, market for markets yes. and such. But mm-hmm. on the CBD, because they are, they struggle or the hemp, they mm-hmm. struggle to get out of the ground. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I really see the the and transplanters mm-hmm. uh, being a part of this equation, mm-hmm. and I mm-hmm. and we've had that success. You know, putting mm-hmm. cover crops together with transplanters. Yep. Oh yeah. Um, you know, I I don't see any reason why you couldn't have a you know mm-hmm. jungle cover crop mm-hmm. with uh, roller crimpers on the transplanter mm-hmm. and transplant mm-hmm. as we go. And yep. plus, the transplant technologies are out there now that yep. don't require as many laborers right. to operate. Right. So yeah, no. Uh, I, talk to me about the uh, choosing the planter versus transplanter yes. way, or do we have a project yes. together here in the future?
2: Yeah. So you have, you have made some valid points. I will, I will offer a little bit more perspective though on some things, but um uh, yeah, I transplanted, I no-till transplanted 23 acres last year. Um So we've done very good because I had a no-till vegetable transplanter. I built one back in the late, late nineties. And uh so I had it here. It was, it was, again, it was a natural for me. Uh, to do that. Um, one of the things with, with hemp and the seed costs is it's going to dramatically come down because the price was way, way, way higher than it needs to be. Okay. and There's some there's some other uh, the, the, with the auto flower. I don't know who's familiar with auto flower, which is a basically based on the day length, like a corn plant is. Um, so you can plant these 85 day auto flowers. You plant them and 85 days later they're ready. Most of the CBD varieties have been what they call photosensitive, where it's the shortening days mm-hmm. uh, in August that triggers the flower onset. So it doesn't matter when you plant a photosensitive, it's kind of like soybeans, it's going to start um, you know, uh, flowering when the, when the day length gets to a certain point. And so then everything is ready for harvest within a two to three week period, no matter when you plant it auto flowers you can space it out so we're planting our goal this year we're switching to auto flowers is every week we're going to be planting some so we can harvest every week and that just keeps keep some of the bottlenecks that that are associated with harvesting and drying and everything the other thing too is uh high density seeding Uh, and this is only occurring uh, because we know the price of seed is coming down i'm working directly with seed companies in this seed companies to see the future is uh is way higher seeding rates because because I have been told what where they think they can get down on the seed, and trust me it 's not a lot, uh, but the seed production it' 's like hemp is still not matured uh, at all as far as the industry goes, and it 's coming out a very small scale and now, when you bring in the technology that we have in agriculture which which it 's not going to take long uh, i mean we 're planning on doing direct um, direct harvesting right in the field uh this year taking it straight to a dryer so we can have dried product literally the next day Mm -hmm. the next day after harvest dried product um uh and then with that uh high density plantings that's going to help us with weed control i'm talking 15 inch rows i'm talking uh auto flowers by the way only grow two to three feet tall Hmm. you don't have these big massive christmas trees out there which we really don't have good technology to harvest that, but you just picture it's almost like wheat. Now it's now now it's like, oh now we can now we can do this the way we're used to doing things in farming. Hmm. And uh so that's just a few snippets of what we're working on now. Varieties, varieties haven't been developed. Right. It's like we're working with nineteen fifty corn genetics right now. <laughs> you know? So all that's why I'm in the hemp business because there's so many, there's so much to do. And I and the thing I love about it is it's a health benefit. And the more I learn about it, the more we're starting to hear it hasn't been researched in the last 80 years, we've been shut down. This plant has a lot to offer. And I think the time is right now. The public is ready for this. They're more health conscious. Another reason I wrote my book is is because consumers are more interested now in the way food is grown and how it's grown and how it affects them and the quality of food and everything. So. Um, that's why I think hemp fits into the times that we live in right now.
0: Plus, when you get the integration of the cover crop dialed in, and you can go to yeah. the 15-inch, I mean, mm-hmm. that gives you a much better opportunity for rolling down the cover crop Yes, you know, as you're planting. Mm-hmm. And the nice part about that is you can, let's face it, if CBD is a health product, mm-hmm. people are going to want it organic. Yeah, you know that's just mm-hmm. how it's going. right. Mm-hmm. And if you can grow that with a cover crop, not mm-hmm. need herbicides, mm-hmm. you can certainly get nutrients organic without mm-hmm. a problem. So, right, yep. yeah,
2: no, that's a that's it's a plan, Marty. That's that's where I'm headed. Uh, that's where I'm headed uh, in that. So,
0: excellent. No, I, I think they they're meant for each other, and and I'm excited to see mm-hmm. that connection between soil health and human health.
2: Yes, it really, absolutely. That's
0: Absolutely true. Yep. What else is going around in that mind of yours, Steve? Well, you
2: maybe touched on it—the whole nutritional density thing. Um, that's a big thing in the future. I'm I'm working with uh, the Real Food Campaign and the uh, BioNutrient Food Association, and, and 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 again, this is it's it's being a little bit theoretical yet, but they're working on a, a meter that can literally be hooked into your smartphone, eventually be integrated into smartphones. Mm-hmm. That we can test the nutrient density of a uh, a product. For instance, you could go to the store, and they're not quite there yet, but you can go to the store, and you can see which tomatoes have the highest nutrients in them, uh, and and even like selenium and you know, things like that that we know have benefits to our human health. Um, when that occurs, that is game changer technology. Now. You know, we've heard other things before that never really came to be. So I got to throw the caveat out there. But I'm involved with some of that research, um, and and although the whole blockchain transparency, being able to identify all the segments of production of food in this case, uh, is important because people want to know. And now with the technology, you can just flick on a QR code of a product and you can see where that was grown, maybe the field it was grown in. Uh, so, to me. The, the whole thing of the future and the future-proof farm, uh, the title of my book, is, you know, farmers, I look at it as this. There's opportunity out there, but you're going to have to, you know, wake up a little bit to capitalize. And, and even just for, for corn, soybean farmers, I'll say, uh, the, the, I think the days of business as we've done are over. And they'll have to be some sort of soil health component you will somehow have to prove or identify that you're doing something. And then it doesn't need to be a lot, but uh, something that you're in essence from a consumer mindset that you're producing a healthy product and you're protecting the planet. And I like to say it this way, because I'm not a quote unquote stereotypical environmentalist in that, you know, activist type uh, way. But if, if a farmer uses soil health principles, regenerative agriculture principles. For the most part, the environment's going to take care of itself. That's what it does. It's like a side product or byproduct. If you want to look at it that way. So, you know, let's just, let's just farm in the way God intended, the way nature was. Like you said about pick your weeds. Well, let's grow the weeds or cover crops that benefit our catch crop. Nature was designed to cover itself nature is designed for diversity and you you look at a woods or a grown-up area you see diversity you see uh greenness you see things that are generally healthy you don't see disease you don't typically see nutrient deficiency even though when you take a soil test the nutrients seem low but it's the biology that brings it all together and that's kind of the new frontier uh that we're in in this and you know it's so exciting when you start putting these pieces of the puzzle together and see this new picture of the future, as I put it.
0: And I think in the past as farmers, we've been paid for pounds, bushels or tons. And I think, you know, because everything's commoditized as we move forward in the future, we're going to get paid for yield, uh, no doubt, but we're going to be able to come up with multiple income streams per Mm -hmm. acre. So what can we do Mm -hmm. for water quality? Uh, An income stream. What can we do for a carbon sequestration income stream? What can we do for birds and wildlife income stream? Or Hmm. it allows us to say we're doing these practices and we can get to Mm -hmm. a premium product. One of those things, all these things that we're doing will allow us to get additional income streams per acre. You know, so can we, you know, I've got projects going on where we're growing corn and wheat together in the, or yeah. excuse me, beans and wheat in the same okay. field, or, okay. you know, we're interceding cover yep. crops, uh, trying to look at more than one harvest per year mm-hmm. and more than one revenue stream per, yep. per harvest per year. Yeah. And that complexity is possible with the emerging technologies like you're talking about, because that's, that's, right. that's going to allow us to connect to the consumer and that's ultimately mm-hmm. they're going to vote for what they want. Yeah, we just want to make sure that they're fully informed and can make that vote happen. Right.
2: Yep. That's for sure.
0: Excellent. Well, definitely. uh, When you get a chance here, folks, check out Steve's book. We'll have a link in the podcast notes here and pick up a copy at your favorite uh, place, read it, study it, and uh, Steve will uh, give you a test afterwards, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> I've
1: got my copy pre-ordered. I saw that come yeah. in, Kim. Thank
2: you. Yeah,
1: I was like, I need to get my, co- I wasn't sure if it was out there yet or no, not. No, it's not. It's coming out, and
2: um, I'm gonna say late summer, just to be safe. Um, yeah, we're just, I'm just finalizing. I just saw the the proof of the final copy yesterday. I was really excited. Pictures added, and and uh you know all the normal stuff you see in a book so it's like oh
1: wow it's coming together that's <laughs> awesome yeah well and, yeah i'm excited to get it
0: and give us a shout out for your your twitter and the social media um uh, handles that uh, people can follow
2: yeah um yeah at uh cover crop coaching is uh the twitter and i'm on facebook and a couple different things just type in my name um and uh so You've yeah
0: come Up under america's most wanted so
2: no i hope not <laughs> <Exactly>.
0: <laughs> but no pretty yeah. exciting what you're up to there and good. and glad to see that you continue to pave the pioneering path yes so, excellent thanks for joining us today steve we really appreciate your
1: time hey, it's been my pleasure good to connect with you again monty tim you bet you take care thanks again yep, you're welcome